0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where well, we continue our series in the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb. So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Ruling the Nations.
1: There are a number of passages in the Bible that you, my dear listener, might have heard but never considered. Consider, for instance, what Jesus promised the church of Thyatira. It's recorded in Revelation 2, 26-27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Does that sound strange to you? Believers who remain faithful to Christ will rule the nations and, on Christ's authority, they do so with a rod of iron, that is, with a strong hand, not allowing the nations to rebel anymore. Well, then, exactly when and how is that supposed to occur? We know that can't happen in the new heaven and the new earth, for at that time, all the unrighteous are consigned to the lake of fire. The nations that then exist in heaven won't need to be ruled with a rod of iron. The nations in the new heavens and the new earth come willingly to obedience. But we also know that it's not the destiny of God's people to rule the nations in the present era. We know that's the case both from history and from the Bible. I mean, consider the frightful abuse of the Spanish Inquisition when the supposed Christian nation ruled with a rod of iron. I mean, up to this day, the cruelty, the injustice, and the wickedness that was done under the guise of Christianity has driven many people away from simply hearing the gospel. No, no. We are not to rule the nations in this era. Furthermore, the New Testament never portrays believers in this present era as ruling the nations. I mean, listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 11. It addresses believers as sojourners and exiles in the present hour. And furthermore, Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 16 said, Behold, I am sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. And then, two verses later in verse 18, Jesus says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. That is to say, you will seem to the nations of the world as mere sheep to be slaughtered. See, Jesus promised his followers ignoble treatment in this world, not glory. That's not ruling the nations with a rod of iron and breaking them like pottery. So, if we don't do it in this present era, and we don't do it in the new heavens and the new earth, when exactly are we to do this? And there are other passages equally perplexing. Isaiah 11 is fascinating. It speaks of a time when the Messiah reigns, and in verses 3 and 4 it says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Again, when does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen in the present era, nor will it happen in the new heavens. In the new heavens, how can there be a dispute between nations, and how can there be the poor who need justice done on their behalf? Or consider Isaiah 65, verse 20, which tells of a day that's coming when a young man who dies at a hundred will have been thought to die far before his time. Again, when does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen in this age, nor does it happen in heaven where men and women will not die. Consider, for instance, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, when is that? Jesus does in some fashion reign now, I know. But he's not putting his enemies under his feet now. And in the new heavens, the enemies have already been eternally vanquished. Exactly when is this progressive reign that eventually and progressively results in vanquishing the enemy to happen? I hope you see the problem. But I have already quoted Revelation 2, in which the church of Thyatira was promised that they would rule the nations with a rod of iron. But that's not the only such puzzle in Revelation. Listen to chapter 12, verse 5. But she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Or chapter 19, verse 15, the lines repeated again. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, at the risk of belaboring the point, Jesus is not now in this era ruling the nations with a rod of iron. So if you believe he is, well, you're gonna have to explain history. There are evil nations that have thrived for a very long time. And in the future in heaven, well, no nations need a rod of iron. So when does it happen? Again, to connect with what I'm saying today, with what I've said yesterday, I've noticed that Revelation 20 verse 3 promises that Satan will be cast into the pit, that he might not deceive the nations anymore, and that's not what's happening in our day. For in our day, Satan is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that won't happen in the new heaven and the new earth, for no nation is in danger in that time of being deceived. So when will this happen? Now, I've said, and I'm going to say it again, that there is only one era in which this can happen. It's the era that is neither the present era, nor is it the era of the new heaven and the new earth. Instead, the only place where these things can happen is the 1,000 millennial year reign of Christ. It arrives after the second coming, and it's a period of time before the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, with that in mind, let's read today's text. It's Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This passage is rich in meaning. So, first, allow me to go ahead all the way to verse 6, and notice that phrase, the first resurrection. Now, even while the phrase, the second resurrection is not used in the book of Revelation, it is referred to. It's found in verse 12 of the same chapter, which says, then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. See, that resurrection, the second one, is the resurrection of all those who face the judgment that leads to the lake of fire. And so we have to assume that the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of unbelievers are two events separated by time. Now then, Jesus does hint at it in John five twenty-eight to 29. He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so the resurrection of life is the first resurrection. The resurrection of judgment, well, it has to be the second resurrection, Now for those of you who still don't understand and are still confused, please know that when we die, our bodies die, but our spirits continue to live. Believers who die now are in a place of rest, are in the presence of God. Unbelievers who die now are assigned to Hades. But both groups await a resurrection, that is, the resurrection of the body. That event happens after Jesus returns. And so with that as a background, let's go back to the first part of Revelation 20 verse 4. "Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, there we have it. The first resurrection has happened. Christ has returned, and with his return, all those who had died in Christ were raised bodily. Paul speaks about that very same thing, First Thessalonians 4:16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Ah, the first resurrection. And so at the coming of Christ, all those who are now in heaven receive the resurrection of the body so that their bodies are after the order of the resurrected body of Christ. And all believers who are on earth at the coming of Christ are instantly transformed and also receive a body that is like Christ raised body, never to die again. And then as was promised to the church of Thyatira, they're placed on thrones. They're given authority to rule the nations and to judge the nations. And they do so with a rod of iron, meaning that their authority to judge can't be thwarted. Now, of course, they do so under the authority of Jesus. But let me add, the language here is unambiguous. This is not the language of symbolism, This is the language of factual reality. So when Paul castigates the church in Corinth, and he wonders how they can take one another to court, you remember that? In chapter six of 1 Corinthians verse two, he says, don't you know that the saints will rule the world? Well, who are we ruling? Well, it's the world of the millennium. And so if they're appointed to rule and reign with Christ, how is it possible, he says, that you can't solve the small squabbles of your local church? Indeed, that's the destiny of
0: all the people of God. Truth in Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Callaway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth in Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth in Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today.
1: We move now to the next part of verse 4. John has said that at the coming of Jesus, the saints are resurrected and sit on thrones. And then he finds it necessary to speak of one distinct group of saints. Notice he said, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the question now is, why does John specifically mention the martyrs, the saints who were alive during the reign of Antichrist but refused the mark? I mention this because there are some who argue that the first resurrection is only limited to the martyrs, but as we've seen, that's clearly not the case. But it is true that the martyrs and the martyrs in the great tribulation form a special group among the redeemed of the Lord. Now, of course, as we've seen in the promise that's given to the church in Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And so we know that all of God's people are given authority to reign. But having said that, it seems to me that there is a special place of honor. It's a special crown, a a special place that's given to the martyrs of Jesus. And here, it's given to those who gave up their lives during the great tribulation. Now, we've encountered martyrs in Revelation. Revelation 2.13 speaks to the church of Pergamum. And it says, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And Revelation 6, 9 speaks of those who are under the altar, who have been slain for the word of God. Now, all of those were killed before the great tribulation. And the history of our faith is a history of martyrdom. But Revelation 17, verse 6 speaks of the harlot of Babylon, who is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. There's a wonderful old hymn. It's entitled, Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. And the author pictures the testimony of the saints, and he writes, Lo, the apostolic train, join the sacred name to hallow. Prophets swell with loud refrain, and the white-robed martyrs follow. And from morn to set of sun, through the church, the song goes on. So notice the author seems to give an order of ranking of those who are honored highly. First are the apostles, then are the prophets, then are the martyrs, and then the rest of the church. I think that well expresses the biblical way of thinking. There is a place that's reserved for the martyrs, shared by none other. But that still leaves us to verse 5, and we're going to need some time to think about that verse. It says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, we should now imagine what's being said. Revelation has just described the second coming of Jesus. He has struck down the empire of the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. Many lie dead and have gone to Hades, but the beast and the false prophet have been thrown alive into the lake of fire. And with that, the believers in Christ are raised to life, and a great company of the human race who has survived the coming of Christ now lives on the earth in their respective nations." The resurrected believers reign with Christ, governing the nations. You're going to remember Jesus' words in Luke 19, 17. He says, because you have been faithful in little, I will put you over ten cities. See, I think that during this time that the faithfulness of God's people is going to be rewarded. To the extent that they were faithful, they will have an assignment given to them in the millennium. Now, having said that, I can almost hear some wondering are you really saying that glorified believers are going to be living on the earth together with sinners during the millennium? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And furthermore, that shouldn't strike us as overly strange. See, we know, for instance, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a resurrection body, and for 40 days, he was with his followers, even eating with them. We should also remember Matthew 2752 to 53. It says that after Jesus was raised... The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, people in various states have sometimes inhabited the same ground. That sounds strange, don't you think? But I would assume that in the millennium, the saints will assist Jesus literally ruling the nations from Jerusalem. They will be in constant interaction with the people and the nations of the world who both live and die during that time. But still, there are some who will argue, well, what is the purpose of this unique period of history? Now, in an answer, I suppose we can only guess, but I notice that Wayne Grudem gives three purposes that God will accomplish during this time. You know, first says Grudem, he believes that God will show how a good society actually operates. He will display righteous laws. He'll illustrate good civil government, proper structures of family, how to conduct educational structures along with what good and fair commerce looks like. He will highlight the importance of worship, the place of holy reverence and fear in a culture. Indeed, during the millennium, God will display what a good culture is. Secondly, Grudem also believes that the millennium will vindicate God's righteousness. And and here I agree. There is but one reason, for example, that there are poor nations in this earth now. The reason, sin, it is corruption and human greed. I mean, the earth that God created is so full of resources that can be harvested even while we protect the environment. So it's true that without corruption, there would not be one poor person on the globe. It's sin in the human heart that creates the unrighteousness and poverty and misery that abounds today. You see, Christ will not only do away with human selfishness and sin during the millennium, he will so reign that the sinful impulses of men will be corrected and punished and resolved. Justice will be done. Now, third, Grudem also believes that the Bible seems to indicate that God gradually unfolds his purposes over time. So all we need to do is think about that. You know, after the human race fell, we we see in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. God promised that he would strike the serpent and crush him through the man he had chosen. In the end, the effects of sin would be turned back. And so, from one reading, we might think that those events should happen very suddenly and soon. Indeed, a great many Bible commentators have suggested that when Cain was born, Eve, his mother, said, you know, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord, and that seems to indicate that she believed that her son was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The night of sin, she believed, would soon be rolled back through this one man. But of course, it didn't happen. Indeed, Cain, rather than being the world's savior, became the world's first murderer. And finally, after so much evil, the flood came, and then God raised up a man, Abraham, through whom he would bless the whole earth. But Abraham was not the Messiah either, and his offspring, although they were given the destiny to be a light to the nations, eventually failed. Jerusalem was sacked. The Babylonians dragged the people of Israel into bondage. Only a ragtag group of survivors ever came back to reclaim the promised land. But finally, in the fullness of time, the Messiah did enter the world. And when his followers asked him if this was the time that he would restore the kingdom to Israel and establish his universal reign, well, you remember what he told them. He said, it was not for you to know the seasons and times that the Father had set by his own authority. Then the Messiah died on a cross for the sins of the world. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He established his church. He gave the charge to preach the gospel to the whole world, but he promises he will come again. And when he comes again, he doesn't immediately establish the new heavens and the new earth, but he rules the nations with a rod of iron for a thousand years. Nothing about all of this should astonish us, for it has always been God's plan to slowly, step by step, bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And even so, even while the millennium is surprising to some believers— some, I guess, have never even heard of it, nor have they made sense out of the many Bible passages that both hint at it and then describe it overtly, so they think it can't be. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now to verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, this reference to the second death is a reference to the final judgment and the casting of the unjust into the lake of fire. The ones who share in the first resurrection need not fear the final judgment of God. Instead, we have a great future before us, we will not only assist Christ in ruling the nations with a rod of iron, but we will be invited to the new heaven and the new earth. Blessed and holy are those who belong to Jesus.
0: Now, I gotta pose an interesting question to you. Now, the resurrection has taken place.
1: Yes, that's correct, yes.
0: But there's still people living on earth. Yes. And so I guess the question is, what happens to those people Do they die? And if they die, what happens to their bodies? What's going on here, John? (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: one of the reasons why people struggle with this idea of a millennium. But, you know, that's exactly what the Bible seems to be describing. So again, I mean, to reiterate, I mean, when Jesus was raised, he had a resurrection body, yet his disciples did not. So those two things can coexist. So what happens? Let's say, you know, somebody lives a very long life, as Isaiah says, you know, if they live to be a hundred and die, then they'll be considered a mere youth. So, um, so what happens when someone does die during the millennium? I mean, if they love Christ and have been born again, I mean, do they immediately receive a resurrection body? The answer is, I have no idea. Uh, the Bible doesn't actually explain that. So, I guess we're
0: just going to have to say that some of those things are going to remain a mystery to us. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us here again next week on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.